Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Okay, we seem to have stabilized. Well, I'm, I'm Steve Orleans, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm thrilled today to have my friend Ryan Haas talk about his new book called Stronger. It is in this time when there's so much discussion of China that is not fact-based, that is not data-based, that is ideological, uh, Ryan has written this extraordinary book, really a wonderful read uh, about what our policy towards China should be. It's stronger because basically, I, Brian, I think Almighty is you want to make America stronger, and that should be the thrust of our of our policies, and that will help us um, compete with China. Um, it is absolutely a must read if you're interested in U.S.-China relations. It's just a must read. There is no excuse for not reading this. I'm not going to go over Ryan's full bio, uh, except to say he's the Michael Armacost Chair in Foreign Policy at the Brookings Institution. I think a lot of us dealt with Ryan when he was the uh, Director of China, Mongolia, and Taiwan Affairs at the NSC in the second uh, Obama administration, and before that was at the U.S. Embassy. Uh, in Beijing, uh, but it's it's wonderful to be joined by someone when I agree so much with their views. But let me just start off with a question, which is, Ryan, why this book and why now? Well, first of all, Steve, thank you for allowing me to join you today for this conversation. It's really an honor for me to be with you. The 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 reason I wrote the book, uh, I have to confess, was not uh, to become rich or famous. We all know it's axiomatic that uh, fear sells. I've sort of made a case for the opposite of fear, uh, that I've made a case for confidence, that the United States can and should approach its relationship with China from a position of confidence that's born of an awareness of our strengths, and that a confident approach towards China will allow us to approach the relationship in a more calm, cool-headed, wise, long-term uh, way. And Part of the reason why I, I wrote the book was because in recent years, I've grown increasingly concerned that we've lost some of our confidence in our dealings with China. I, I first encountered this uh, during a transition briefing at Trump Tower in December 2017, when we were handing off the policy baton to our uh, counterparts in the Trump administration. And you know they, they expressed a high degree of anxiety about whether the United States will continue to exist uh, you know, as an entity 50 or 100 years from now. And I was just stunned uh, that how, how we could be so anxious and insecure about our own standing in our relationship with China. I watched the national security strategy of the Trump administration come about, which frames the relationship in high, highly adversarial terms. And then I saw a really reactive, defensive, anxious uh, approach to the U.S.-China relationship take hold in, in the years that followed. And so that was the backdrop in which uh, I wrote the book. I wrote it in 2019, and it, it closed in early 2020, my writing for it closed. And it was really just at its most basic level intended to try to provide a different, uh, more confident framework for the way that we approach uh, our long-term competitive relationship with China. 
it sounds a lot like the way the Biden administration talks about uh, China, that it's, it's kind of build back better, that we need to strengthen, we need to focus first on what's going on in the United States, then focus on our alliances, then deal with, with China. Is that an accurate statement? To a certain extent. I mean, I have to be totally transparent about the fact that when I wrote the book, uh, Joe Biden was placing fourth in the Iowa caucus. Uh, it was very unclear who was going to win the Democratic primary, let alone the 2020 election. So uh, I certainly wasn't writing uh, in anticipation of any specific electoral outcome. And in a way, I think that sort of freed me up to write what I really believed. And, um, you know, I, I served in the previous administration with many people who occupy senior positions of this current administration, uh, Avril Haines, Bill Burns, Jake Sullivan, Tony Blinken, and others. And so I'm sure that uh, the experiences that we shared and the lessons that they provided to me uh, influenced my thinking and my writing, and hopefully in some small way, uh, the same is true in reverse. But if, if this seems cliche, then I've done my job. Uh, if, if this is all conventional wisdom now, then that's great. Because at the time that I was writing this, it certainly was far from it. You talk in the book about that experience briefing uh, some of the folks on the Trump transition team, um, you know, who basically cut you off and said, China's an existential threat. We have to do what there is to win. And it's a great, it's a great, early in the book, it's a great anecdote. Can you say who that person was? Oh, I prefer not to identify them by name, other than to say that they occupied a senior position in the White House uh, for a period of time. How did, uh, that make, how did that make you feel? I mean, here you've been working, you worked at the embassy, you worked kind of for Obama, and suddenly they're kind of saying, we're throwing out what you've done. Yeah, it was a, it was a stunning exchange um, because it ran so far from uh, the mindset and approach that we had to the relationship. And it made it very clear that there would be a very dramatic and sharp shift in the conduct of American policy towards China in the, in the years to come. In you talk about AIIB, I had very little disagreement with the Obama administration. I did have disagreement with the decision not to join AIIB and you were part of the, you were at the NSC at that time. Um, you say in the book, uh, it's sought to displace existing Western institutions. So my question would be how? And do you think in retrospect that that analysis at the time was wrong? Well, look, I, I think that uh, if there were opportunities for do-overs, we would certainly ask for one on AIB. <laughs> it was a mistake. Uh, it was rolled out poorly. It was communicated ineffectively. Um, but here, here's what was happening, Steve. We all knew that there was zero chance that Congress would allocate funding for the United States to join AIB. So our membership was not an available option to us. Uh, we were focused on laying the groundwork and building the case for passage of the Trans-Pacific Partnership at that time. Uh, and having a, a drawn out discussion about uh, the merits of joining AIB would have really muddied that picture. We also had genuine questions about how AIIB would function. How independent would it be uh, from Beijing? Uh, what, what would uphold uh, certain safeguards and standards that had become normal with other multilateral development banks? And how would it interact with other multilateral development banks? And there was a philosophical question about whether or not we would have more influence by withholding uh, our membership until we gained clarity and confidence on, on some of these fundamental questions, 
or whether we would have more influence by being inside the tent, so to speak, and, and working from within. And different countries reached different judgments on that. It all sort of played out uh, in the press in a very unhelpful way. Uh, and so it definitely could have met, been managed better and I wish it would have been. Did we actually try and persuade allies not to join? No, we, we, never, um, we never threatened any country with consequences if they chose to join or really put a strong arm to them not to. Uh, we shared our views and our concerns and our questions and, and asked that they, uh, that they reinforce them in their own way. And each country chose to do so in its own manner. Yeah, it was, should we, in the Biden administration, re try and join AIIB? The Chinese have said in meetings I've had with Chairman Jin that they're still holding a seat at the table for us. Uh, it wouldn't bother me in the least to see uh, the United States uh, inside the tent at AIIB. You, in the book, you say she extinguished any hope of political reform. Any hope, but we are seeing political reform in some areas. We're seeing a much more transparent judiciary. You know, I visited the Supreme Court of China. They have a remarkable place where every single case that is, is filed is put up on a board and you can kind of go and see what the pleadings look like. Is that fair to say that they've extinguished all hope of political reform? And first that question, then I'll have a follow-up. Well, I, I think that in the near term, uh, we should probably have modest expectations about the pace and direction of political reform. My, my view is that we have uh, enough data points to draw a trend line in terms of how Xi Jinping would like to govern China at this point. He's been in power for over eight years. And it's clear that he wants to consolidate control. It's clear that he wants to have a highly disciplined approach of carrying out the decisions that are reached uh, at the very top, and uh, that there is a real concentration of power uh, around him. And so uh, I don't expect that that's going to change. Yes, we can find certain data points that, uh, that deviate from that trend, but the overall direction seems pretty clear at this point. Now, I would say, and I think that this is in agreement with you, Steve, that what is happening now, the snapshot of 2021 doesn't necessarily have to be what happens into eternity. China will change. Uh, Xi Jinping is not going to have a iron fist uh, grip of control uh, in China forever. And I expect that uh, over time there will be adjustments and recalibrations. I can't tell you whether that'll be in five years or 25, but I'm very confident it will happen. Yeah, I mean, I've lived through a lot of pendulum swings in China. I guess I'm old, but you know, I arrived there in, in 79 and watched Democracy Wall got, get taken down. I watched the loosenings. I watched June 4th. I watched Deng's Southern Trip. I, I've seen all of the, the, the back and forths. And I think it's very important that policymakers understand your point that China is not static. And China is also not monolithic. And yes, President Xi is exercising all kinds of control, but there are lots of folks who are bringing different ideas up to him. Uh, corruption has obviously been a focus of, of uh, President Xi. Will digital, is part of the digital currency initiative to end corruption in China? If everything is digital and there's a record at PBOC, obviously you have no privacy, but there's also no way to get money. It's very difficult to get money to a government official without there being a record? Well, it, the world would be a better place if, uh, if the digital UN uh, eradicated corruption inside China. 
I, I think it'll probably squeeze out some of the corruption, uh, but I still expect that uh, it will be a feature of the system as long as there is not an independent judiciary or a free press. Uh, it's going to be very hard, uh, absent those tools uh, for the Chinese system to squeeze out corruption. And you know, we also have to contend with the fact that uh, there is corruption that takes place in non-monetary units as well, uh, whether it be jewelry or, or offshore assets or other things. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things that must have been frustrating from having left the NSC and gone over to Brookings to hear this talk about bilateral trade deficits and the, the loss of jobs in the United States. And the book really, I think, analyzes that and brings real economists in to, to give real data. Why do the American people not agree with you and me? I mean, I agree with you. I think economists agree. But if the American people, if you, I don't know if it's been polled, would say that we've lost all these jobs to China, jobs to China, millions and millions of jobs. Why is that? And what should we do? Well, I think what we should do is have our leaders tell the truth, uh, level with the American people. The, the reality is I see it, and as economists explain it to me, is that uh, Americans have benefited broadly uh, from expanded trade with China. We have increased uh, by a huge margin uh, our ability to sell items into the fastest growing market in the world. Our companies have grown significantly. Uh, our consumers have much more purchasing power now than they did 30 years ago because products have gone down in price uh, that we purchase and consume. But the effects of all of this have been very concentrated in certain geographic parts of the country that have been hit hard and uh, have really lost uh, the, the heartbeat of, of their local economies. And we haven't done a very good job as a country in helping those uh, areas that have been most hardly hit. And so what, what I would love to see us do uh, is to be clear about this, just be straightforward. Uh, it, it doesn't help us to ignore the problem, nor does it help us to weaponize it as a, as a tool for political expediency. Um, we need to solve it because trade with China or with other countries is not going away. So what do we do? I think that we need to invest in education. I think we need to really put a lot of emphasis into, into STEM training. We need to create incentives for companies to invest in these areas of the, of the country that have been hit hard. And we need to prioritize this as an issue because if we don't, we're going to have you know, this two-speed economy uh, that's really going to put stress on the fabric of our society. But, why but I'd the, love to hear your thoughts, Steve, because you've been thinking about this for a long time as well. <laughs> the, um, I get to interview you today. The, uh, it's, you know, why to talk about bilateral trade deficits and to have people believe that that's meaningful is really quite extraordinary to me. If you took economics 101 at any um, university, you would learn that it's, it's about savings rates. Um, and it's really shocking that the American people have come to believe that that trade deficit has taken jobs from American. Um, I think in part, it's part of disinformation that is, is just pervading in America. If you tell a lie enough times, it begins to be believed. And that's really very, uh, that's very scary. Um, what do you do about it? exactly what you say? You try and and tell the truth and have people who really understand speak, which is what the National Committee tries to do. We vet our speakers 
very carefully and we make sure that they're qualified to talk about uh, what they talk about, uh, which leads to an interesting question about China. Um, you suggest that the Chinese leadership is insecure and that polling data is inaccurate in China. That's not what, what a bunch of folks, especially folks at Harvard think, they publish their polls that show enormous support for the Chinese leadership among the people of China. Talk about why you think the polling is inaccurate on China. Well, Steve, my views on this are informed by my conversations with Chinese leaders and Chinese experts and, and people who are inside the Chinese system who in moments of candor will acknowledge that they don't have confidence in their understanding of what popular views are inside of China. Uh, they don't have the rhythms of regular elections that we do to provide feedback. They don't have a free press that, uh, that really digs into problems and tries to expose problems. And they don't have reliable polling. Uh, I, I certainly don't want to cast aspersions on our friends at Harvard. I, I would just say that in talking with uh, our friends inside the Chinese government, they will tell you uh, that they do things like uh, monitor Weibull to get a feel for what the mood is inside China. That is not uh, a reflection of uh, a government that has a precise understanding of where the public attitudes are. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Yes, the, 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 mo the monitoring is certainly of Weibo. It would be the equivalent of determining where the United States is by looking at Twitter, right. which, which would not be a, a very wise approach. I think that would give us a pretty skewed picture. Yeah, you've got great section on the South China Sea. Um, the, you know, you say in part, uh, Beijing, you know, there has demonstrated is not benign and passive. Um, but you don't kind of put it in the context of what the United States has done in terms of violating, potentially violating international law and the consequences of that. When I have, I am, I have been early on, uh, partly, I may be, a, I was an international lawyer at the very beginning of my career. And when you get a judgment as you did in the Philippine tribunal, I've been very uh, categorical in stating that China has acted in violation of international law in its South China Sea uh, policies. Um, and I get huge pushback. One of the pushbacks that I get is, you guys violated, you, the Americans, violated international law and in your invasion of Iraq. And, you know, hundreds of thousands of people died. Ours, nobody has even died. So keep some perspective. How do you respond to that? Well, the, the Chinese, you know, they talk about it, at least with me, in terms of great power exemptions. The United States exempts itself uh, from international rules when it serves its purposes or its requirements to do so. And they get frustrated that the United States doesn't grant uh, the same latitude or leeway to the Chinese when they feel like it serves their requirements to do so, for example, in the South China Sea. Um, look, we, we just have to own the fact that, yes, uh, in our history, we have uh, been less than perfect. Uh, we, we like to think that we have acted for noble purposes, uh, whether it be uh, protecting in, innocent civilians or, or dealing with uh, injustices, but yes, we, we have acted outside of the system at times. Um, on, the, on the South China Sea though, I, I guess Steve, the way that I think about it, um, and I may be in a minority on this view, but that we sort of did ourselves a bit of a disservice by allowing this issue to become such a contest of great power wills, 
where every Chinese action needed to be responded to with a commensurate American military reaction. And in the absence of it, we would appear feckless in the face of, of China's march. That wasn't the, the space that we should have found ourselves in. Uh, what I hope that we can do going forward is, is sort of refocus this discussion around what can be done to uphold key principles that have enabled the long peace in Asia for so long. Uh, you know, respect for international law, peaceful resolution of disputes, uh, diplomatic flexibility and compromise to manage intractable challenges. These are the things that have undergirded and underpinned uh, peace in Asia for so long. And the more that we can sort of find ourselves on that ground, uh, I think the stronger position we will be in to put pressure on China either to, to find ways to, to mellow its approach um, or to, you know, sort of self-identify as standing apart from it and the regional consensus. If China signed a code of conduct, would that be good enough with, with uh, you know, the, the, the states that are concerned in there? Well, I think a meaningful code of conduct that bound all parties together would, would uh, probably be a step in the right direction. You spend a lot of time in the book talking about human rights and kind of trying to put it, you know, obviously it's our values, but what should be our red line on human rights? If the Chinese do X, we do Y. How do we, how do we handle that? It's so difficult. Secretary Blinken has characterized uh, Chinese activities in, uh, in Xinjiang as genocide. Um, you know, that actually diverts attention from the bad policies. You know, it's because now there's a discussion of whether or not it's genocide. It appears my former office in the State Department said, well, it's probably not. That's the legal advisor's office. Uh, but that diverts attention from actually uh, the truly terrible policies that that China is implementing there. So how do we deal with that as a foreign policy? Yeah, I, I'm not uh, hugely enthusiastic about the use of the term red lines, um, but I, I do think that it is a reality that uh, as repression continues in places like Xinjiang, it is going to color public attitudes in the United States towards China and our perceptions of, of China as a society. And that is going to affect the political space in which the, the relationship operates. But we, I, I agree with, I think, the underlying sentiment, Steve, that, uh, that what's happening is, you know, it, it impacts how we look at the world and, and who we are as a people. We're bound together by our values, not by shared ethnicity or blood. And, uh, and we, can't, we can't afford to turn away from what we're watching. Um, how do we encourage China to be more responsive? You talk about it, encourage China to be more responsive to its citizens. How do we do that? I, I wish that I had a, a really smart, snappy answer to that question, but I have a few thoughts. Um, I think that one way that we put pressure upon uh, the, the leadership in China is through the power of our own example. The, the more that we're living up to our ideals and the values, the, the more the contrast uh, becomes clear when China does not. Uh, I think that it, it also helps when uh, we can establish that we're pursuing these issues because we just deeply, fundamentally, philosophically care about them, not because we want to use them as a weapon uh, to undermine the Chinese Communist Party or tarnish China's image on the world stage. And, you know, I think that one of the most impactful decisions that we made over the past 10 or 15 years on human rights issues was very tangential. It was adjacent to human rights. It was putting an air quality monitor on the ceiling or the roof of the U.S. Embassy. 
and broadcasting that uh, air quality index to American citizens so that they were aware and their kids could be aware of whether it was safe for them to go outside and play in the playground every day. What it did uh, was it catalyzed this discussion inside China about why don't they have information about air quality in Beijing or in Shanghai or in Chengdu or in Chongqing or Guangzhou. And it led to a, a broad awareness of you know, things like AQI and, uh, and, um, and particulate matters in the air. And it, it has had a catalytic effect on spurring progress towards improving air quality in China. I'm tremendously proud of, uh, of the small role that the United States played in sort of helping set that in motion. And so the question that I, I always am asking myself is what is the next air quality monitor? Uh, how do we find those, those opportunities for progress? And you know, I, I also think it's important for us not to think about human rights in a binary good versus bad, uh, where we've been trying to either as being good or being bad. It's a continuum. It's a continuum for every country. And trying to find uh, opportunities to make progress where progress is possible, hopefully we'll, we'll build momentum and, and uh, help push the Chinese to being more responsive to the, you know, the ambitions and demands of their citizens. Yeah. You talk in the, in the book about kind of areas where the United States, especially the UN, where the United States and China work together, the Balkans, Panama, Haiti, Iraq, uh, I would have added Darfur and, and China's role in peacekeeping, which has been truly remarkable, the most peacekeepers of any of the P5. Why does nobody know that? I, you tell people that and they say, really? Yeah, it's it's a uh, underappreciated story, no question. Um, I think part of the reason why is because like we were talking about at the start, you know, fear sells. Uh, the idea of, of steady progress uh, among diplomats and trying to lessen problems around the world isn't isn't the most exciting, eye-catching uh, story, as much as I wish it were as a, a former diplomat myself. Um, but it, it's a story that needs to be told because it's important. It, it underlines the fact that uh, the past 40 years were not just an abject failure, uh, that there was real substantive concrete progress that was achieved through hard work. Uh, and much of it was incremental. Uh, there wasn't you know, these great epiphany moments or breakthroughs, there rarely are. I mean, diplomacy by its very nature is an exercise in compromise. The only times when the United States has gotten everything that it wanted was in situations of unconditional surrender, uh, which occurred twice over the past hundred years at the end of World War II with, with Japan and Germany. Every other instance has been you know, uh, an exercise in compromise, but in that process, we have built some pretty strong muscle memory uh, around the great the global financial crisis in 2008, uh, the outbreak of Ebola in 2014 or 2015, uh, Iran issues, uh, helping to bring about uh, the, the JCPOA. The United States and China have cooperated in very meaningful ways, and, uh, and we need to regain some of that muscle memory going forward. What's the lesson from, you were there for it, the discussion between President Xi and President Obama uh, about stopping China from cyber attacks, which were used for commercial benefits for Chinese organizations, Chinese corporations. So what's the lesson for today in that whole process? Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting story. It's probably underappreciated. Um, for many years, the United States had been raising concerns about China's cyber activities uh, and they'd largely gone unheeded. Uh, and in the run-up to President Xi's state visit in 2015, uh, we informed the Chinese that we you know, we had reached the end of our rope, uh, so to speak, and that we would have to begin imposing penalties uh, to address our serious concerns that had gone unaddressed. 
Uh, and it was at that time that the, the Chinese dis decided to dispatch Meng Jianju, who was the security czar at the time uh, for Xi Jinping to Washington, two weeks before the state visit to negotiate an agreement for how to address cyber issues uh, so that they could be managed uh, within a diplomatic framework. We went into that negotiation with a list of five or six things that we considered to be essential. Uh, we walked out of that negotiating room at four in the morning uh, with agreement on all five or six of those things. And for the period from, from the uh, agreement until the end of the Obama administration, the, the deal largely held. Now, elements of it were subjective. We were talking about government-sponsored, cyber-enabled uh, uh, espionage for commercial gain. And so there were instances when we would uh, try to develop a more precise definition of where that boundary was uh, for commercial gain. Uh, but that was a, a conversation that was being had. We also were gaining confidence that when we brought cases to their attention, that they would be addressed and vice versa. So it was a, a period when, when we were working to take problems off of the table. Uh, and contrary to the public narrative, uh, there was actually uh, you know, some progress that was being achieved that was observable and measurable. And then what happened? Well, I left government in 2017, so I can't, I can't tell the, the rest of the story, I'm afraid. Uh, but based upon what we've you know, read from public accounts, uh, both sides appear to have stepped away uh, in their own respects. I think that from an American perspective, we hold China accountable for walking away from the deal. From the Chinese perspective, they argue that, that we uh, suspended or unwound uh, the dialogue mechanisms uh, that, that were an element of the agreement and that we had taken a step back from it as well. Uh, either way, uh, it, it's sort of water under the bridge at this point. It's disappointing uh, that that progress that was achieved, that was hard fought, uh, has, been, uh, has, has been unwound. I hope going forward that we'll be able to build upon and improve uh, upon the foundation that was set. That was gonna be my, my next question, which is should the Biden administration um, move forward to reinstate this kind of agreement? Is it still, we don't even know if it's still going on. Yeah, I don't, I don't know where the conversation stands, um, but if it is not uh, being addressed, I, I would argue that it should be. We don't lose anything um, by trying to hold Chinese to account for agreements that they make with us. They made an agreement with the United States government, not with Barack Obama. And, and so uh, we should hold them to account uh, and, and we should work to, to build on it because Look, cyber issues are only going to grow in importance uh, as more of our, our world and our existence becomes digital. Where was Huawei when you were at the NSC? What was kind of the view of Huawei? And um, then talk about the procedure by which an extradition request is processed. Does it go with just the Justice Department action or does it go through state or NSC? Well, when I was uh, at the National Security Council, Huawei was certainly an issue on our radar. Uh, it was a subject of our attention and a subject of our concern. Um, and we may have slightly different views on this, but I think that there's solid grounds to have concern about Huawei operating in uh, systems of close security partners of ours or neighbors of ours. Uh, and that we, we are within our rights to try to protect ourselves um, in part because uh, of concerns about information security and in part just because of the, the nature of Huawei's technology. It's a little bit um, uh, porous. So that, that was uh, where we were. Um, the, the concern about Huawei was not a, 
uh, a Trump phenomenon. It's something that, that uh, the Trump administration inherited. Uh, and it's a concern that I think the Biden administration will remain attentive to as well. On, on your latter question about uh, extradition request, I, I never was in a situation where uh, there was a request to uh, detain a executive of a foreign company uh, that was transiting an airport. So I have no experience to draw from on that. But uh, you, I, I don't know if uh, in your days at uh, the, the legal advisor's office that ever crossed your desk. It did. Uh, it was it was what I call a ministerial function. So there was you, you just check that that the documentation was proper and then you ju just process. It was requests from countries that had extradition treaties with us for us to detain uh, a person. If we had the extradition treaty, it was very, it was ministerial. There was no, there was no true substantive uh, analysis, at least in my experience, no substantive analysis. Um, should we not, should we reevaluate where we are with Huawei? Should we, you know, we're obviously punishing US chip makers significantly. Uh, there was some discussion that the Department of Defense does not agree with these strict limits on exports of chips because it's reducing profitability of U.S. chip makers and it will reduce, therefore, their R&D. But should we just shrug and say this is national security? Let's just move on. Well, my view, Steve, is that uh, American policy is not going to destroy Huawei. Uh, Huawei is going to continue to exist, whether we like them or not. And if Huawei moves into things like uh, building batteries for electric vehicles inside China, that's not the worst outcome in the world for us. Uh, but on, on the broader point that, uh, that you're making, I very much agree that, that uh, it's in our interest for our semiconductor companies to remain at the cutting edge of innovation. In order for them to remain at the cutting edge of innovation, they need to have robust research and development budgets. In order for them to be able to afford robust research and development budgets, they need to have markets to sell to. And if they don't have uh, China, the leading growth engine of the world is a market to sell to, uh, then we're going to have problems. Someone else is going to have to pick up that slack. Uh, many people offer the United States taxpayers the solution. I'm not sure that there are a lot of people that are super enthusiastic about uh, subsidizing uh, semiconductor R&D budgets uh, with our own taxpayer dollars. So there, there is a healthy balance to be struck for sure. Uh, I don't think we've reached it yet, um, but I, I'm, I'm less concerned about selling non-cutting non edge chips to China. Uh, they're going to purchase them anyways, uh, and I would just assume that uh, they'd be able to help, help uh, our companies uh, advance their own innovation in the process. Do you think we push China down the path of indigenous innovation with respect to chips, that the tens of billions of dollars they're spending were because the United States basically told them you can't rely on us as a supplier, and wouldn't we have, would we have been better off um, just not lobbing that shell at them and saying you better do it yourself because you can't trust us? Yeah, it's it's an important question that we're going to have to unpack over the course of the coming years. I'm not sure that anyone can reach a definitive judgment yet, given the uh, information we have available to us. My, my own judgment is that uh, the Xi administration was pretty committed to the path of indigenous innovation by themselves. Um, and this probably dates back to you know, the revelations um, from the fellow who left and went to Russia, uh, if not before. 
Uh, so this was already a train oh, that had left, left the station. Uh, we may have accelerated uh, the velocity that that train was traveling on, but I don't think that we pushed it out of the station. Yeah, I, I always had, I, this was a very uh, non-traditional view, but I always believed we should have been selling military equipment to China so they would be dependent upon US military equipment. And that if they're dependent, that actually reduces any possible strategic competition. Uh, but that was not shared by my friends in the, in the US military. Um, so that, that way back when, uh, well, before, in, in the 80s, I think we had sold, Grumman had sold F-16s to China, which then as a result of, of uh, June 4th, the sale got canceled. And I'm not sure if we ever refunded the money, but it was, it was certainly, we were actually moving down that road and then it was derailed by, uh, by June 4th. Um, why hasn't the Biden administration, you, you have a, a great piece of data in the book, which is 60% of America's most, most highly valued technology companies were founded by immigrants or children of immigrants. It's just a fabulous piece of data. It was one which I was not, aware of. Um, why has the Biden administration not completely overturned these visa policies that the, they were put in after you left the NSC? I don't, I don't know the answer, but I hope that they get around to it soon, uh, because I, I fundamentally believe that openness is one of America's great strengths in our competition with China or any other country. Um, it, it, it is a differentiating factor. It allows us to be a sponge for the best ideas and brightest minds from around the world. And it makes me think about a, you know, a famous quote from Lee Kuan Yew, the former uh, leader of Singapore, who said, of course, China would like to surpass the United States. The challenge is that China can only rely upon the talents of its own people, whereas the United States gets to rely upon the talents of the world. And I, I think that it's a simple but profound statement because it really speaks to what part of what makes us uh, who we are, but also part of what makes us so strong is that we have this constant replenishment of talent uh, into our system. And I, I hope that we get back to attracting it. But it gets to a different question, a, a similar related question, but different is why is the Biden administration not reversed a lot of these policies, which I see as kind of low hanging fruit? Um, you know, obviously the visa policies, we haven't reinstated Fulbright, uh, congressional staff trips are still not allowed, um, tariffs are still in place. Consulates are still closed. Entity list is still seems to be pretty, pretty arbitrary. What's going on here? Well, I think that uh, they are what about a hundred days into their term. Uh, they still don't have uh, key officials in place yet. Uh, the Assistant Secretary for East Asian and Pacific Affairs, the the person who really has day to day custody over the management of the relationship, is not has not yet been confirmed. So uh, I, I'm willing to, to grant them a little bit of leeway uh, on this score. Uh, you, you have identified a, a series of continuities. And if I may, let me just add a few discontinuities to balance out the picture. Uh, first, uh, there is no longer the efforts to demonize the Chinese Communist Party or drive wedges between the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese people. But Chinese Communist Party members still can't be granted visas to the United States. Uh, there is no longer the same efforts to pin all blame for all domestic problems upon the Chinese Communist Party. 
Joe Biden, so this is the second, uh, Joe Biden has uh, made a very clear distinction between China as a competitor and not as an adversary or an enemy. I think that this is a subtle but important distinction. A competitor is someone that you want to outpace in, uh, in order to uh, outcompete. An adversary or enemy is someone who you feel the need to harm in order to protect yourself. Uh, both Joe Biden and Xi Jinping have acknowledged that it is uh, proper and necessary for two powers to cooperate even as they compete. It's a departure, again, from the Trump administration. And there have been cautious but steady efforts to rebuild some of the uh, channels of communication that exist between Washington and Beijing, uh, whether it be on climate issues, as we saw last week with John Kerry, or Afghanistan, or Myanmar, uh, or Iran. So uh, yes, uh, things have not uh, moved as quickly as I think you or I would have hoped, um, but uh, you know there there are subtle but significant changes that I think are afoot. Yeah, I remain as you. I I know all the people work with most of them, and I remain optimistic that that necessary changes will be made. But I worry that the narrative, you know, the Chinese government does its best to make the narrative in the United States extremely difficult. So it's tough to do anything. Um, and I worry that it's not a, it's not static that, you know, China is moving and it's not moving in a constructive direction in my view. And partly that's because there was some expectation that things would improve after Biden became president. And they really, the continuities, yes, you're, you're right in what you've pointed out, but the continuities far exceed uh, the changes. Yeah, I think you, you've raised a good point. So we, I think we're struggling with a bit of a challenge in expectation management. There are some in Washington, I wouldn't associate myself with this, but there were some who hoped that uh, Beijing would moderate uh, its behavior in areas of concern to us uh, as a way to create space for an improvement in the relationship. And uh, really, we haven't seen much of that uh, the situation with Taiwan has become more tense. Xinjiang has not gotten any better. Hong Kong has gotten worse. Uh, Australia is suffering uh, under pressure from Beijing. Uh, the, perhaps one area where things have softened slightly is on the China-India border, but that's, that's the exception that sort of proves the rule. And then from Beijing's perspective, I think that they had expectations as well that, that you described that have been unrealized. And uh, as you said, I, I worry that uh, both sides will begin to reach conclusions that neither is serious about taking steps to improve the relationship. And we will find ourselves sort of locking into um, a dynamic that isn't healthy for either. When, partly because way back when I, I was part, I was the, I always say the Xiao Tudou, I was the small potato in the creating the unofficial relationship with Taiwan when I was in the State Department in the late 70s. And I consider it uh, probably the most important thing I ever did in my life because I'd been a student in Taiwan in 1972 um, and felt very close. And the success of that policy is remarkable. It's really one of the great American foreign policy successes of my lifetime, that we have peace, stability, economic and social integration, and we had for a long time no real serious issues in cross trades. The Trump administration has thrown out policies with respect to official contact. They've, they have been salami slicing the Chinese by upping official contact more and more, sending, sending a, a, a uniformed admiral, uh, sending you know, Secretary Azar, sending 
others throwing out the rules with respect to that the State Department has with respect to official contact. I was surprised to see uh, Secretary Blinken reaffirm those rules with respect to how we deal with Taiwan representatives in the United States. And Chinese response seems to me to be a response to that, that because we're changing the rules slightly, that we're salami slicing, you know, cross-strait relations, they're responding uh, very aggressively, overly aggressively. How should they, how should the Biden administration be dealing with that? Well, I agree that there is a action reaction dynamic that has taken shape in the Taiwan Strait. Uh, both sides believe that they're reacting to the actions of the other. Um, there has been a growing discussion in Washington about how close are we to risk of conflict in the Taiwan Strait. I'm less concerned than some about the military dimension of the challenge, but I'm more concerned than others about the non-military course of uh, challenge that Taiwan confronts. Because the reality every day is that uh, Taiwan is facing increasing diplomatic isolation, increasing economic pressure, uh, cyber operations, uh, interference operations inside their, uh, their own political system. And it appears to be an effort to try to wear down the psychological confidence of the people of Taiwan in their future and try to establish that Taiwan is on its own in dealing with the mainland and that its only path to peace or prosperity is to welcome the, the embrace of Beijing. And so from, from my perspective, I think that, uh, that a, a steady, clear, firm approach by the United States that remains within the bounds of our longstanding uh, one China policy is the right place to be. I think that uh, it is in our interest for the people of Taiwan to feel safe and confident in their future, to feel like uh, that they can enjoy dignity and respect on the world stage, that they're capable of uh, maintaining uh, a cutting edge innovative capability inside their society, and also that they're able to diversify trade and investment links uh, with others around the world. That will uh, stabilize them and, and help them feel more confident in the future. And I think it will also uh, serve to the benefits uh, of the United States and our interest in peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. Yeah, Mort Holbrook, who I think you probably know, who knows Taiwan quite well, says, what's the point of the Biden administration following Trump's lead in pushing US ties with Taiwan ever closer to quote two Chinas with the visit of the US ambassador to Palau, what next? Well, I, I, I don't know what's next. Uh, if I did, I'd tell you, but I don't. <laughs> the, the, the reality is that we are in a situation uh, and it's time for just some, just some clear straight conversations about what the intentions are of each side's actions. Uh, and, and what they perceive to be responding to. Uh, because right now, I think that we are doing a lot of intuiting of what the other side is trying to do. Both sides believe that the other is moving, moving the ball, so to speak. Uh, a lot of people in Washington believe that Beijing is, is ratcheting up uh, pressure on Taiwan and, and really accelerating uh, the pace at which it seeks to compel Taiwan to unify. And me, many people in Beijing uh, certainly have a, a different perspective the, the reality, though, is that neither Washington nor Beijing uh, benefits from allowing the situation to spiral out, and neither do the people of Taiwan. Yeah. Ultimately, the 24 million people of Taiwan are going to be decisive to questions about their future, not us or, or anyone else. And so uh, the more that uh, the, the burden is on Beijing to provide uh, an attractive offering to the people of Taiwan and to try to, uh, to, try to persuade them 
uh, about the direction that they would like to see Taiwan's future. That's that's uh, to everyone's benefit. Uh, to the extent that that we are sort of shadow boxing each other, I don't think that uh, that it benefits anyone. Yeah, I think the the question which you raise is is this China's plan or is this reaction to what we're doing? And I wrestle with that question all the time. And you know, I actually I had people chart the the overflights by the mainland fighters and bombers to actions by the United States. And there is a, there is a correlation, which is, which is uh, distressing. Well, it means yeah, it's I mean, fixable. Uh, so, but okay, but let's, let's go on. Um, from our brilliant intern, Kathy Huang, uh, you've had experience sitting next to many top CCP officials, including Lee John Shu. Can you offer an insider's view on what you see as Beijing strategies and goals approaching US-China relations. That's from the, literally the personal contact that you have. Uh, some organizations such as the now National Endowment for Democracy have claimed China's ambition is to export its authoritarian model abroad. Do you agree? My, my general view is that uh, Beijing would like to have its political and economic model respected. It would like to be the leading power in Asia and a leading power on the world stage and it would like to have its core interest respected. Uh, the question though, or the challenge that we run up against is that in the process of trying to gain respect for their political and economic model, China appears to be making uh, more and more efforts to degrade or undermine the appeal of democratic models. Uh, and we see this with increasing frequency uh, from our, our friends in Beijing. And it concerns me because it's unlearning a lesson that the Chinese were so uh, committed to having learned at the end of the Cold War, which is that it's not the Chinese advantage to allow uh, this rivalry to become more and more ideological. I think uh, today compared to five years ago and compared to 10 years ago, the ideological edge of the relationship is sharper. I don't think that serves uh, either side's interest uh, and and we're going to have to see. the the. The thing that I'm struggling with, Steve, and I'd love your perspective on this, is that China really had a formula that enabled its rise, that, that served it so well for so long, uh, maintaining a benign periphery, keeping a generally stable relationship with the United States, steadily reforming and opening, and being cautious about assuming undue burdens on the world stage. And on all four of those lines, uh, China has deviated from the course that it was on uh, for for the 40 years of its momentous rise. And so I think that that sort of undergirds the question that Kathy is asking about whether or not uh, something has changed fundamentally. Yeah, I, and I think the views of Chinese, I, I think, you know, again, I always go back to the story that was told to me by the, the equivalent of the National Security Advisor from China, which is Obama gets up in the morning and he's briefed on on Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia, you know, all Venezuela. Uh, Xi Jinping gets up in the morning and he's briefed on uh, Guangzhou, Tibet, Xinjiang. It's China's focus is inward and its history has always been to focus inward. So the idea that it is seeking to export its model, I think is simply, uh, you know, you can find scholars to advocate, you know, who advocate anything. But that the government is truly trying to do this, I don't. I don't agree with that. Uh, they are totally focused on 
internal security. And I think I always look at their defense budget. It's smaller than their internal security budget. That, that ain't true in the United States. Maybe it should be, given that our threats have now become very much uh, internal. But it's, it's uh, uh, you know, the Chinese are worried about threats from China, not threats from abroad. To the extent that something abroad flows into China, they then react abroad. Yeah. So when they seek to stifle uh, academics, it's academics who they believe are affecting potential independence movements in China. Um, and that's kind of what they, what they worry about. Now they shouldn't do it, nobody is excusing it, but you need to understand what generates a, a response uh, from them. Um, yeah, I very much agree. I think of, of the 50 issues that Xi Jinping gets briefed on every morning, I, I would argue that at least 45 of them are domestic. And if, if China's aspiration is to export a China model, uh, you'll have to persuade me, persuade me where they will have purchase in doing so. Uh, it doesn't seem to be the most attractive model for exports uh, to, to anywhere, particularly the, the areas that know China best, uh, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore. Uh, they are not clamoring to to embrace or import uh, China's political model. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, James Cranny, from president of the California Citrus Quality Control, uh, can you imagine China and the United States returning to a normalization of trade that would essentially exclude two-way technology trade, but allow other sectors to resume normal trade, including removal of Section? 301 and 232 tariffs. Obviously, he's concerned about citrus exports to China. As I would be too if I had his job. I, I guess I would rate this situation or scenario as possible, but not high probability. Um, my, my sense is that technology is a, you know, it's a key engine of the US economy. There's a lot of knowledge production that's taking place still today between the United States and China. Uh, I don't expect that uh, the United States will simply abandon uh, technology is an issue in the relationship. And I also don't see much uh, near-term likelihood that the United States will roll back restrictions to, to pre-Trump levels uh, within the coming months. So my expectation for the time being is that uh, the Biden administration will keep the phase one trade deal intact until it expires early next year. Um, but I hope that they use that time productively, uh, both in a US-China context, but also in a regional context to try to build some momentum around the affirmative agenda, whether it's on digital trade or WTO reform, but also to try to knit together efforts with our allies and partners around the world so that we are uh, working in a coordinated direction to try to encourage China down the reform path uh, on issues, whether it be subsidies or market access or tech transfer that are of concern to all of us. Sounds like the Biden administration. Uh, <laughs> the, um... You, know, you say in the book, China has found a way to get inside the EU tent. Um, but what about the recent EU decision sanctioning Chinese officials? I think the Chinese may have expected that that was not going to get through, but then it did. Does that suggest more unity in the EU against some of these policies of China than you expected? I don't, well, I think that uh, the coordinated action uh, by the EU and the United States and a few others to implement sanctions on Xinjiang related issues exceeded Beijing's expectations in a way that they were quite displeased by. Uh, and it also, um, I, I don't think that they were prepared um, for, for the unity of effort that took place. 
And from my perspective, I think that Beijing overreacted and overresponded uh, in a way that will be long-term disadvantageous to them. I'm not yet prepared to say that, uh, that the comprehensive agreement on investment is dead or alive. I think that there's a long ways to go in that story. Uh, and we should probably have a little bit of patience to, to watch how things play out. Um, the fact that, uh, you know, the French and German leaders are still meeting directly and speaking directly with Xi on a whole host of issues uh, that are adjacent to that suggests that uh, at least they don't appear to have given up on, on the idea either. You have a, you know, the Biden administration obviously is focusing a bit on the quad, Australia, Japan, India, and the United States. You, you were, are pretty skeptical in the book. Tell the audience why. Well, my concern with the Quad when I wrote this in 2019 and early 2020 was that uh, the, the form was outpacing the substance and uh, that it was not a cost-free proposition for us. Uh, in other words, the, to the extent that the United States, Australia, Japan, and India appear to be sitting at a grown-up table deciding the fate of issues in the region, uh, it creates a lot of external effects for us with other partners that matter significantly, whether it's Vietnam or Korea or others. Uh, but it also puts stress on the idea of the role of ASEAN uh, in the region. And so that was the, the basis of my concern. I've been very pleased with uh, the early actions of the Biden administration on the Quad. I think that the, the fact that they were able to focus on affirmative issues that matter to the people in the region uh, is significant. Uh, and the three areas that they identified were climate technology and COVID response. To the extent that, uh, that they're able to pool resources and bring other countries that are affected into uh, working together and, and building this dense network of relationships in the region, that's to the best. And if it creates a race that is a top dynamic where China tries to outcompete uh, quad countries on, let's say, uh, COVID vaccine distribution, then the world's a better place. Uh, so I'm, I'm very comfortable with the direction that the Biden administration is taking things at the moment. The, the book. Would you say the book represents a majority view or a minority view today? That's an interesting question. I don't, I don't know. I certainly hope that it represents a majority view. Um, my, my general. I'm not, sure, I'm not. I'm actually not sure if it's not outside the consensus in Washington today. Well, I think it's probably outside the consensus in Washington. Uh, the question is whether or not it's reflective of views broadly across the United States. Um, and I, I honestly don't know the answer to that question. Polling is very negative on China, incredibly negative on China, lowest in history. Correct. And uh, you, you're it, trying to put nuance in the discussion. Correct. So there's, uh, there's plenty of work left to do on this score, and I appreciate conversations like the one that we're having today to help do that. But my, my general sense, and you can look at this in something that uh, Jake Sullivan and others wrote when they did an extensive study on foreign policy for middle class. One of the conclusions that they reached after traveling to Minnesota and Iowa and Ohio and Colorado was that most people in the United States aren't clamoring for a cosmic clash with China. Um, they're not sitting around uh, the barbecue pit wondering how we're going to, you know, how we're going to prevail uh, over China. Yes, China is doing things that are deeply concerning to us and that have a direct impact on our interests and, and our ambitions. Uh, but there, is, uh, there are more and less effective ways to deal with that. And the, part of the argument that I'm trying to offer in the book is that for American policy towards China to be effective, it needs to be seen as durable and sustainable by the Chinese. Uh, otherwise, they will just try to wait it out, wait out until the next administration. 
in order for it to feel durable and sustainable, it needs to be reflective of the views, priorities, and pain tolerances of the American people. But it also needs to have some relationship to the, the priorities and concerns of our allies and partners. Because otherwise, uh, we, will, we will isolate ourselves in the process of uh, trying, to, uh, trying to pursue a relationship with China. Yeah, I agree. And, and the, 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 they talk a lot about, the Biden administration talks a lot about a, a foreign policy and a trade policy for the working class. What troubles me is the people most punished by our tariffs are the working class. So if you're, you know, rich and your bill at Walmart goes up 800 bucks, you kind of go, whatever, that doesn't matter. If you're making $25,000, $30,000 a year and your bill goes up 800 bucks at, at, at Walmart, uh, you got to decide, do I not buy the shoes? Do I not buy the pants? Do I not buy the shirt? Do I not buy the books for my kids? It's, it's we need, you know, we need a policy that's responsive not only in name, but in substance to the concerns of the, uh, uh, of the working class. And so far, again, I am with you 100%. Know these people, they're good, they're not ideological, but we need to move. We need to move. So last, uh, last question. Um, do you think, you know, I always go back to Eisenhower's uh, speech, you know, every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired signifies in the final theft sense, a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and are not clothed. He worried a lot about the military industrial, what he then called congressional complex, which then congressional got dropped from the speech. Is this playing a role kind of in our inability to get a nuanced message out about China? Are there people who benefit from demonizing China? Well, the, there are people who are deeply worried and anxious about China and what China represents and the threat that they perceive that China poses to the United States. I don't necessarily want to get into the business of questioning their patriotism or their intentions. Uh, I will simply say that I, I don't think that's the most productive path for us to take. Um, we want to be in a position where China is responding to us and we are building on our own strengths rather than uh, getting into some deep clash uh, because the reality is that we will not be able to impose our will on China any more than China is going to be able to impose their will upon us. Um, we also don't need to defeat China in order to protect ourselves. Uh, we need to live up to our values. Uh, we need to live up to our potential. We need to take care of our people and help them unlock their talents. The more that we can do that, uh, I'm confident that we'll be just fine in our ability to compete with China. This has the fastest hour and five minutes I've experienced in a long time. This gives you a taste of what is in this fabulous book, an absolute much must read stronger. I think our office has posted the link to how to get it, but it really, if you're interested in US-China relations, it's a must read. And it's a fair reflection of really one of the great uh, scholars on US-China relations today. And, and uh, I should say, Nippon sure will find, see, you know, the next generation is well represented uh, by Ryan. And we, we did coordinate our outfits today. So we both wore blue blazers and blue shirts. I see everyone who started on this call stayed to the end. But Ryan, thank you for being such a voice of reason on US-China relations. Thanks for reading the book. 
and thanks for, uh, for writing the book and thanks for uh, participating in our program. Thank you, Steve. The thanks belong for me to you. Thank you. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.